Well, as we prepare to celebrate our Savior's birth tomorrow, I want to give you a perspective of the Christmas story that's much different than what many preachers are preaching today. Instead of focusing on His first coming, I want to focus on His second. God became man in His first coming. In His second coming, He comes as a judge and as an executioner. That's not usually the story that many are aware of. But it is in our future. And this is the third Christmas reminder that I wanted to give you. If you remember, the first two was God became man. The second one was Jesus is God. And now the third one is Jesus is coming back. And it's a sad day in which we live that not many are looking for his return. Or they think that he's coming, but it's thousands of years off. Well, I think it's much sooner than we realize. Steve Lawson has rightfully stated, At Jesus' first coming, he stood trial before the world. At his second coming, the world will stand trial before him. But while the unbelieving world will panic when he comes, the Bible tells us the saints will worship him. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that he will be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's the anticipation of every child of God. It's also one of the dominant teachings of the Old and the New Testament. It is claimed that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible mentions this doctrine. To every one mentioned of the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. 318 references to it are made in 216 chapters. Whole books and chapters are devoted to this subject of the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for Him to come back? Are you excited that He's coming back? You can be sure that he's coming back because it comes from God who cannot lie. And it's coming from his word, which Jesus has proclaimed in John 17, 17, is the truth. Just listen to a few of the verses that mention his coming. One is in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, if you zoom over into the New Testament... Jesus himself said in John 14, 3, I will come again. Revelation twenty two twenty 20 ends that way, with Jesus saying the same thing, I am coming quickly. Even at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, there were two angels that appeared to the disciples as Jesus had ascended back into heaven. And they said this to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. 
So you may be asking them, what will it be like when he comes? It won't be anything like it was the first time. In fact, let me just have you, before we look at our text this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And I want to show you just a few verses that give us a picture of what it will be like when he comes. Matthew 24. During this time, the tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel is taking place. But we're told in earlier verses that it's cut short for the sake of the elect. Many believe, and I believe this too, that that cutting short was the rapture of the church. But listen to what Matthew 24, 29 through 31 says. And this is the scene. There are many people that believe that the rapture will be secret. And that doesn't even make sense because billions of people will disappear. How can you make that secret, right? Now here's what everyone will see. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. That is not a signless return. That is not a secret return. Every eye will see him. As the sky is lit up with his glory. We need to understand that the second coming of Christ is a big event, just like the first coming of Christ was a big event. And there were many things that were associated with it. For example, in his first coming, we have his birth in Bethlehem, we have his early life, we have his ministry teachings, we have his miracles, his selection of his disciples, we hear of his conflict with religious leaders, we witness his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We see him at his last supper. We see him at his betrayal and his arrest. And then we see him at his crucifixion on the cross. But it doesn't end there because then we see his resurrection. And then we see his post-resurrection appearances and his ascension into heaven. And all of those events are associated with his first coming. Here are the events that are associated with his second coming. His second coming includes events like the rapture of the church, his final judgment on the nations, his defeating of evil, the resurrection of the dead, his establishment of God's millennial kingdom, which there is a popular view. It's not a new view. It's an old view revisited that says that Things are going to get better. Things are going to be blissful at the time in which he comes. I'm sorry, folks. That can't be any further from the truth. So as we think about this this morning, I want to focus on the event that's found in Revelation 19. So let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation 19. The event in chapter 19 occurs right before 
the war the world will make with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first section of chapter 19, we hear things like hallelujahs and praise that are going on in heaven. The hallelujahs that are heard in verses 1, 3, and 6 are coming from a great multitude that are in heaven. And this same multitude was mentioned in chapter 7 and verse 9. Many believe that that is the church. They're rejoicing, according to Revelation 19, 2, because His judgments are true and righteous, for He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. That's why they're rejoicing. After the second hallelujah in verse 4, it says, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then in verses 5 and 6, a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. And like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is a day of rejoicing. As also seen in verses 7 through 10, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And then we hear, And this is the text we'll look at this morning in verse 11 and following. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone." And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. What an amazing day that's coming. This is coming. This is future. This is yet to happen. But this is also a day where Christ and his church will finally be together. And it's also a day where Christ 
will take vengeance on all of His enemies. This is the culmination of redemptive history. This is how it all ends. This is a day when our salvation will be made complete. Listen to how Peter describes it. He says it's a day when the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. It's a day where we will look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's 2 Peter 3, 12 and 13. And even in anticipation of this long-awaited event, Peter says, since these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 2 Peter 3.11 You see, in spite of the church today becoming like the world, there will be a remnant that will keep herself pure and keep herself ready for the return of Christ they are those that John describes in 1 John 3, 3, that have this hope fixed on Him. And because they have this hope fixed on Him, they purify him themselves just as He is pure. They live holy and godly lives. That's the only way you can be ready for the return of Christ, is to be living a holy, godly life. If you're not living that way, then you're not ready. So by the time Revelation 19.11 occurs, the church is already in heaven. All the seals of Revelation 6 and Revelation 8 have been opened and acted out. All the trumpet and bold judgments have been poured out on all humanity. And now Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven and He strikes the nations with destruction. That's not what you thought you were going to hear this morning, is it? Look at verse 11. John tells us, and there's mainly two things I want you to see here that he tells us. First is this, John saw heaven opened. And the scene that he has before him right here is very similar to the vision that's found in chapter 4. If you want to flip over to chapter 4, just hold your finger right there in 19. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So instead of seeing a door, he sees heaven opened. And he sees a white horse coming out of heaven. This is also a similar scene. In the first scene, the rider on the white horse found in Revelation 6 and verse 1, is not Jesus, it's the Antichrist. He's described in this text we're looking at this morning, that is, Jesus is, he's described by nine descriptive phrases. You heard them as I read, it, read them to you, but listen to them as I share with you what they all mean. This is how, actually, the world will see him when he comes, not as a baby, but as a judge. And not just as a judge, but also the executioner. He not only pronounces judgment, he carries out the judgment. He himself does it. First, the first description we see is in verse 11, and it says that he is on a white horse. Verse 14 says that the armies of heaven 
are following him on white horses. Now that's the raptured church. That's you and me if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. We're coming back on white horses. You know, it's very customary for a triumphant Roman general to parade on the Via Sacra, which was the main thoroughfare of Rome. And that was followed by evidences of his victory in the form of booty and captives. They would parade their, their captives and all the things that they gathered in winning that, that war. So the white horse is a symbol of Christ's triumph over the forces of wickedness in the world. And, you know, folks, we ought to be rejoicing. Even though this is a hard story to swallow because of what is yet to come, it almost sounds fairy tale-ish, but I guarantee you that this is not a fairy tale. There are many people that fear the book of Revelation, so they don't read it. I would say read it. It's the Word of God. And one of the things that you can rejoice in, because some of these things that you read, you're not a part of. But yet there are other things that you will witness. The church today believes that it's just going to get to the point to where Christ is going to come back before anything gets really bad. And that's just one of four views about this. But I will tell you, from my understanding of studying Scripture for almost 40 years... I, I see the opposite of that happening. I see that suffering is a part of our life. Suffering is how He makes us into His image, but it's also how He prepares us and how He uses us. One writer said this years ago. I was sitting there listening to him preach, and he said, you know, before God uses a man greatly, He must break him severely. And then he went into the book of Job. I can't argue with that statement especially when you go to the book of Job and you see the suffering that Job experienced. But the first description that we see here is the rider on the white horse. He comes out of heaven. And notice the second description, what he's called. He's called faithful and true. That's not the first time he's been called that. Over in chapter 1, verse 5, he was called faithful. In chapter 3, and verse 7, he was called true. In chapter 3, verse 14, he's called both faithful and true, like he's called that here. This is none other than a description of Jesus. You know, the last look that the world had of Jesus was him hanging on a cross. They didn't even believe in his resurrection. You know, the guards were paid to lie about the resurrection, the empty tomb. And uh, the world from that point on continued to propagate the lie that Jesus was stolen from the tomb and his disciples took his body away somewhere and hid him so that they could proclaim that Jesus resurrected but they couldn't produce a body 1 Corinthians 15 says after his resurrection he was seen by over 500 brethren so these 500 saw him or they're lying about seeing him and the testimony of the disciples is the same. They saw him after his resurrection. And not only that, I think one of the greatest things is this. If he didn't rise from the dead, then all of these apostles that he had gave their lives in vain. Because all but one was martyred. Peter was even executed on a cross, but he had 
pled with his executioners to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel it was worthy for him to be crucified in the same way his Lord was crucified. But prior to his crucifixion, he had to watch his wife be crucified. These are references to Christ. There's no more appropriate name for Jesus than faithful and true. He's faithful to his promises, and what he speaks is always true. Though some would like to pick and choose which teachings of Jesus they wish to accept, he is just as faithful to his promises of wrath and judgment as he is to his promises of grace and salvation. Because Jesus is faithful to his word and righteous character, it follows that in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's verse 11, which is a third description. See, his holy nature demands a holy, righteous reaction to sin. And because he does what he says, he must judge the wicked. You're sitting here today and you don't know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. He will take all vengeance out on you. And you will spend eternity in a Christless place called hell, eventually called the lake of fire. And you will spend forever there in torment. Now if that doesn't move you, nothing else will. Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 7 begins, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, says His coming will be in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Do you hear that? These will be punished with everlasting destruction. It's like Spurgeon said, over their heads are the words forever. So you're going to live forever. The question is, is where? Are you going to be in heaven with Christ, worshiping Him all throughout eternity, or are you going to be in hell? without Christ, being tormented with everlasting damnation. As I said, Jesus came the first time as Savior. This time He's coming back as judge and executioner. When He came the first time, wicked people judged Him. When He returns, He will judge all wicked people. Acts 17.31 says, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection is proof that Jesus will do this. It's proof. Now, according to verses 15 and 21, He will not only be their judge, but He's also going to be their executioner. Angels may gather the wicked for judgment, but the Lord Jesus will pass the sentence on them and carry out the execution. So as we look at this chapter, these verses, that Jesus is not seen as a suffering servant 
like He was in His incarnation when He came the first time. No, in this vision, He's seen as the warrior king who wages war against His enemies. John Philip says, The Lord is a man of war. It is an amazing title for the Son of God, says Alexander White, commenting on Bunyan's holy war. Holy Scripture is full of wars and rumors of wars, the wars of the Lord, the wars of Joshua and the judges, the wars of David, with his and many other magnificent battle songs, till the best-known name of the God of Israel in the Old Testament is the Lord of hosts. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ described as the captain of our salvation. And then the whole Bible is crowned with a book all sounding with battle cries till it ends with that city of peace where they hang the trumpet in the hall and study war no more. The Lord is a man of war. In righteousness He judges and makes war. The judging has been going on throughout the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, the pouring out of the bowls. Now He makes war. He who long centuries has endured patiently the scoffing, the insults, the bad manners of men for whom ages have contemplated Calvary and all that it displayed of human hatred and contempt, and who through the millennia had made peace through the blood of that cross now makes war over that blood. Notice a fourth description, verse 12. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. That's consistent with John's earlier vision of him in chapter 1. When John saw him in chapter 1, verse 14, he said his eyes were like a flame of fire. What does that signify to us, eyes like a flame of fire? Well, they're, they're, they're penetrating. Nothing escapes his vision. It's a piercing vision. He can... See into the deepest recesses of the human heart. Because Hebrews 4.13 tells us that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Everything is laid open before Him. To the worldly church, which was Thyatira, He presented Himself as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Chapter 2, verse 18. And even to each of the seven churches, He said to them, I know your works. I see them. The eyes that wept over the fate of unrepentant Jerusalem and over the sorrow and the suffering and the death in this sin-cursed world, John sees flashing with the fire of judgment. There's another description. It's also in verse 12. And it's the fifth one. It says, And on his head were many crowns. Many crowns is the Greek word diadem. It refers to a ruler's crown. They're worn by Jesus to signify his royal rank and his regal authority. Many indicates his collecting of all the ruler's crowns, which would signify that he alone is the sovereign ruler of the earth. It was very customary in the ancient world that after the defeating of an enemy, the king would take the crown off the head of the defeated king and wear it 
And we have a, an example of that in 2 Samuel 12, 30. After David had defeated the Amorites, he took the crown of their king from his head, and it was placed on David's head, signifying sovereignty. A sixth seal is also found in verse 12. It says, He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And it's funny when you have people read that and they'll say, Well, what do you think the name was? <laughs> no one knew except himself. So it's pointless. A seventh description is also in verse 13. It says, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the blood here is not representative of what, she, what he shed on the cross. This is a picture of judgment, not redemption. The blood is the blood of all of his slaughtered enemies. The imagery here takes you back to the book of Isaiah. Whereas in Isaiah 63, it says this, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine through alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. What a vivid picture. Yes, these are some of the passages maybe you skipped over in your Bible reading. Like we skip over the genealogies. A question arises as to why his garments are blood spattered before the battle has actually begun. The answer is that this is not his first battle. It's his last battle. He has fought for his people throughout redemptive history. So his war clothes bear the stains of many previous slaughters. At that day they will be stained as never before. When it says in verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. See, this is the wrath that is to come. Do you remember at the baptism that John the Baptist was baptizing many as they were coming and confessing their sins? Then all of a sudden the scribes and the Pharisees showed up. And do you remember what John the Baptist said to them? Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Speaking of this, this is the wrath to come. You know, there are a lot of people that say, you know, well, I don't know Jesus, but, you know, he understands me. We have an understanding. And, you know, I just believe that in that day that, you know, he'll put my good works on a scale, my bad works will be on a scale, but, you know, it'll tip in my favor and God will let me into heaven. You know where you get that from? The devil's Bible. That didn't come from the Word of God. That's a lie. 
That's the devil lie. To keep you out of heaven. To keep you from acknowledging Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Everything about what we're hearing today is what is coming. And everything about our life should be warning people about this coming wrath. You know, there are people that come to Christ for all kinds of reasons. Some just want to have a good life. They want to have a happy life. And yes, there's joy in this life, but there's also a lot of suffering in this life, right? But they're coming for the wrong reasons. You know, you dangle before anybody certain benefits of something and they're going to latch on to the benefits. The greatest benefit is to flee the wrath to come. That's the greatest benefit. And how you flee the wrath to come is you run to God. You don't run from God, you run to Him. And you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ whom He has given for the purpose of your sin. Look at the 8th description. It's found in verse 13. It says His name is called the Word of God. This identifies Him unmistakably as Jesus. John is the only one that's used this term. Remember, we went through it last week. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We also looked at verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, John said in 1 John. He's talking about Jesus. His name is the Word of God. And He's called the Word of God because He is the revelation of God. He is the full expression of the mind and will and purpose of God. He's the radiance of His glory. He's the exact representation of His nature, Hebrews 1.3 says. But you'll notice in verse 14, He's not coming alone, but He'll be accompanied with the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, on white horses. The fine linen is the attire of the bride. Because he told us that earlier. Look at verse 8. They had made themselves ready for the lamb. And it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 7 describes the wife of the lamb. And that is the bride of Christ. And who is the bride of Christ? The church. His name is called the Word of God. And armies in the heavens, that is the church, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Clean means pure. White is something that is bright and shining. You remember in Matthew 17 that Jesus had transfigured himself before three of his apostles. 
And it described his garments as being white, such as no launderer has ever seen. Nothing like the Tide commercials, right? We sit there and watch TV, and I tell my wife, I said, you know that that's not the same garment. Because nobody can pull any garment out of their dryer, and it'd be, it'd be without wrinkles and ready to fold. I mean, unless you got a super dryer or something, you know? But it was glistening, it was shining, it was radiant. And he tells us in verse 15 that from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. John's already seen the sword in chapter 1 and verse 16 where it's used by Jesus to defend the church against Satan. And John sees it again in verse 15, but this time it's used as a sword of judgment. And that sword comes out of his mouth which signifies deadly power in his words. Once he spoke words of comfort, now he speaks words of death. The stern, swift judgment that marks the onset of his kingdom will be the pattern of his rule throughout the millennium. The millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ. After all of this, he will reign from Jerusalem on the earth for a thousand years. During that thousand-year period, Satan will be bound in a pit but at the end of the thousand years, he will be released for a season so that he might deceive the nations one more time. And then when they join for that great battle, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and all unbelievers are. You know, again, when we think of things being forever, it's hard for us to really imagine that because... We don't really know what forever means. We've never lived forever, right? We had a starting point. We have an ending point as far as in this life. But we don't know what forever is. We've never seen something last forever. So even when you get hurt, you have people trying to comfort you, and they'll say, well, you know, this won't last long. This won't be forever. Well, you know, some illnesses, some Diseases, some things do last your lifetime, right? My 14-year-old son was injured at birth. He has cerebral palsy. He has seizures. He has all these different things that go on. And they've been going on for 14-plus years. I long for the day when he can run around in heaven... <laughs> I long for the day when he doesn't have any of these infirmities. See, you can't get mad at anybody over these things, even though the issues that came up during that time, you can try to be mad about that, but really, if you want to be mad about anything, you've got to be mad at sin, because it all comes from sin. Death, disease, and destruction comes from sin. Judgment. And the whole point of Christ judging the nations is because of their sin. 
their wickedness. And yet today, we have in the church where we don't want to talk about sin anymore as if we've eradicated it. It's gone. We don't have any more problem with it. And so preachers are changing their messages, cute little sermonettes, all to make you feel good about yourself. You know, frankly, folks, you should feel pretty bad about right now. And if you don't feel bad, you should feel thankful. You say, well, <laughs> you just went to two extremities, <laughs> bad to thankful. Well, you should feel bad because seeing what your sin is really like. And, and you and I really don't have the fullest picture of the total devastation of our sin on our lives and others, what it does to other people, but most importantly, what it does to God. But thankful... Because in Christ, you're forgiven. When you come to Christ, your sins are washed away. When you come to Christ, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That's what you ought to be thankful for. God's not pouring out His wrath on you. He's pouring it out on unbelievers. So as I said earlier, if you're sitting here this morning, you haven't embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your future. This is your future right here that you're hearing. If you'll notice in verse 15, the sword that comes out of His mouth... It's going to strike down the nations. It's also going, to, also going to be by which he rules the nations. And ruling them with a rod of iron, that is a reference to the millennial reign. When Christ is ruling from Jerusalem, and by the way, Zechariah 14 says, before all that takes place, before all this happens, all the nations will come against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be... I mean, you thought October 7th was bad with Israel. It's going to be worse than that. There's going to be one man, one individual, that will be able to provide peace for Israel. And that is the man who is referred to in the book of Revelation as the beast. Other names, 2 Thessalonians 1, he's called the Antichrist. He's called the man of lawlessness. His whole operation is according to Satan. He has the power and the influence of Satan. The false prophet that will serve with him, he's also mentioned in the book of Revelation. In fact, they're both mentioned in verse 20, where it says that they're thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. This is not a pretty thing that's about to happen, but during that millennial reign, Jesus Christ will force people to conform to His law. He will rule them with the rod of iron. Now, if you go back to chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 26, Jesus promised the believers in Thyatira that He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end... To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father.
Father. And that's what you're seeing now. The phrase at the end of the verse, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of, of God the Almighty. That was seen in chapter 14 as a <clears throat> symbol of God's wrath stomping out judgment. This here pictures that ancient practice of stomping on grapes as part of the winemaking process. And the spattering of the grape juice pictures the pouring out of the blood of Christ's enemies. As you trample down on those grapes and the juice just goes everywhere. All that is a symbol. Jesus treading out the wine press as he's stamping out judgment on all of his enemies. And the, the juice is a picture of the blood. During that time, the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Look at the ninth description, verse 16. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the third name that's given to him in this passage. Verse 12 gave the name that no one knew except himself. Verse 13 said his name is called the Word of God. And now he's called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And those two names, King of kings and Lord of lords, expresses his sovereign triumph over all of his foes, all of his enemies, and, and it's showing his absolute rule in his soon-to-be-established kingdom. Paul used that title in 1 Timothy 6, 15. He says, He who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So John saw heaven open. He saw a very similar scene as he seen earlier in chapter 4 and verse 1. But this time instead of seeing a door open in heaven, he sees a white horse coming out of heaven. Now I want you to notice the second thing as we bring this to a close. John saw an angel calling all birds to the supper of God and the final great battle. Notice verse 17, where we're told the angel was standing in the sun. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble yourself for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. See, once again an angel plays a key role in one of the end time scenarios that is described here in the apocalypse. The angel was standing in proximity to the sun, possibly in front of it, front of it providing a partial eclipse. He stands in this conspicuous, prominent place to make his important announcement. And evidently, the worldwide darkness associated with the fifth bowl has now been lifted since the sun is again visible. And the lifting of that earlier darkness would also explain how the smoke from Babylon's destruction was visible at a distance in chapter 18. But we heard what he cried out, Come, gather together for the supper of the great God. The angel declares Christ's victory before the, the battle is even fought. His invitation to the birds, that's reminiscent of Matthew 24, 27, 
which says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That's not the first time birds have feasted on human carrion in Scripture. Isaiah 18.6 describes the results of judgment on Cush, which was modern Ethiopia. It says, They will be left together for mountains, mountain birds of prey, and for the beast of the earth, and the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them. Jeremiah relates that after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 7.33. He says, The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beast of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. What an amazing scene. Joseph Seiss, he writes about this awful scene. He says, This tale is already an awful story. It tells of the greatest of men made food for the vultures of kings and leaders, strong and confident, devoured on the field, with no one to bury them, of those who thought to conquer heaven's anointed king, rendered helpless even against the timid birds, of vaunting gods of nature turned into its cast-off and most dishonored dregs. And what is thus for intimidation soon becomes reality. The great conqueror bows the heavens and comes down. He rides upon the cherub horse and flies upon the wings of the wind. Smoke goes up from his nostrils and devour, devouring fire out of his mouth. He moves amid storms and darkness from which the lightnings hurl their bolts and hailstones mingled with the fire. He roars out of Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem till the heavens and the earth shake. He dashes forth in the fury of his incense, greatness amid clouds and fire and smoke. The sun frowns. The day is neither light nor dark. The mountains melt and cleave asunder at His presence. The hills bound from their seats and skip like lambs. The waters are dislodged from their channels. The sea rolls back with howling trepidation. The sky is rent and folds upon itself like a collapsed tent. It is the day for executing an armed world. A world in covenant with hell to overthrow the authority and throne of God. And everything in terrified nature joins to signalize the deserved vengeance. And of course, as the next stage in this incredible vision unfolded, John saw the beast. He saw the king and their army, or the kings and their armies. They were gathering to make war with Jesus. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Well, as I said, the beast is the Antichrist, the leader of the last greatest empire in human history. The kings of the earth are the ten kings who rule the ten sectors into which the Antichrist's empire is divided. The armies have assembled to make war against him who have sat on the horse, verse 11, and against his army in verse 14. But look at this. You read verse 19, you see them assembled to make war. Then verse 20 it says, And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So they come to make war and immediately they're seized. This is an instant 
These two demonically empowered political and religious leaders of the world are dealt a horrible blow and they're thrown into the lake of fire alive. The lake of fire is the final hell. Because it tells us that hell is cast into the lake of fire. This is the finality of it all. This is the place that Isaiah described where the worm dies not. This is a place that Jesus described where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Well, apparently the two don't die, but they're transformed miraculously into an eternal form for them to burn in hell. You think that's strange? That's not strange at all. Believers are going to have glorified bodies for heaven. Unbelievers will have bodies fit for hell, Matthew 10. This is the final form. The beast and the false prophet are still in the lake of fire a thousand years later when Satan is cast there in chapter 20. When they're finally given their final punishment. This is really not a war. It's not a war in the sense that we think of wars. What this is, they're assembling for war and Jesus speaks a word. And they're gone. John Phillips, he says as we close, The blasphemous, loudmouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit is punctured and still. The pair of them are bundled up and hurled headlong into the everlasting flames. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals, generals, admirals, air commanders, soldiers, sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. Listen, if you get anything about this today, get this. God is serious about sin. And He will judge all unrepentant sinners. This is a warning. And the warning is this, you better repent. You better humble yourself before Him and call upon Him to save you. Or you will be part of this. If you live for this, what does it mean if you die without Christ? Well, you go to a place of torment. You do go to Gehenna, hell. But at the very end, Gehenna, death and Hades will deliver up the dead that have been there tormented for a period of time. They're judged. Chapter 20, and then they're cast into the lake of fire forever. I know this was not your typical Christmas message, but I'm not your typical pastor either. You ought to know that by now, right? Coming on eight years. Three promises for Christmas that I've given you this month. First promise was God became man. 
Second promise, Jesus is God. Third promise, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Is your family ready? Are your friends ready? Co-workers, are they ready? Have you shared the gospel with them? And of course, if you've never confessed Him as Lord, if you've never repented of your sin, I urge you, strongly urge you, to do that right now. None of us is promised tomorrow. None of us is promised the rest of this day. Some of you may die today. I don't know. I may die today. But I know this. I'm ready. Are you ready? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how you want Him to appear to you. Not what we just looked at this morning as a judge and executioner. You want the gentleness of Christ. You don't want the wrath of Christ. See, Jesus took that wrath for you on the cross. When God poured out His wrath on Jesus, Jesus was bearing yours and my sin. The punishment, the penalty for our sin. And so if you reject Him, then you're left to carry out God's wrath on. And the reason why it's forever, because there'll never come a time when you will have suffered enough for God to stop. There's no offer of eternal life then with Him. There's no offer of salvation. That offer's right now. Well, this morning, we're going to conclude our service with sharing in the Lord's Supper together. And Larry, I'm asking him to come and help me. We're going to pass out the elements that are in front of me. And as we do, I want you to think about what all has been shared with you this morning. And sharing in the Lord's table, this is an event that every child of God is given a privilege to do as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as we focus in on what He did for us. That's why I said a while ago, thankful is the other attitude that you should have because the thankful part is, Lord, thank You that You delivered me from this. I'm not worthy to have had Your love shown to me in such a way to deliver me from Your wrath. Thank You. So as we worship Him this morning, let that be the cry of your heart. Unless the cry of your heart this morning is for salvation. Listen, folks, the Bible says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved.
But the Bible also says that you have to call upon him. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to call upon him to save you. So I encourage you to do that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And we pray now as we share together in the Lord's table. And that we remember your death, burial, and resurrection that we will worship you and thank you for what you did for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.